Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemong podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In this podcast series, you will hear from leading experts who share their highlights from the 2022 ASH annual meeting and exposition, which was held in New Orleans, Louisiana. In today's podcast, experts Aaron Gerds and Lucia Mazarova discuss key updates in myeloproliferative neoplasms, highlighting recent findings from the Momentum trial, the role of combination approaches in MPNs, and novel agents being explored in the field. Hi, my name is Aaron Gerds, and I'm here with my good friend uh, Lucia Masarova uh, from ND Anderson, and uh, here behind, on behalf of VJ Hemock to discuss the you know latest and greatest here at the Ash Annual Meeting for MPNs. Welcome. Hey, thank you very much for having us around. So uh, a lot's been presented at this meeting. Um, a lot of uh, you know, clinical trial results, uh, preclinical data even, some, some new therapeutics. Did anything jump at you, out at you that's super exciting this meeting that you have not heard before? Uh, that's a fantastic question because there's so many I haven't heard before. Uh, it's hard to keep up with everything. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep up with everything. Uh, of course, we were awaiting the, the more updates of the phase three randomized trials yeah. with the add-on or combined the JAK inhibitors. Uh, a lot of good preclinical data, which I'm so excited about. Interferon data. You've presented a great update on the momentum study, right? What about talk about yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you for uh, asking. So yeah, the Momentum study, so the Momentum study is a randomized prospective phase three trial competing momolotinib versus danazol in patients who had previous JAK inhibitor, uh, who are also anemic and uh, who are symptomatic with their uh, myelofibrosis uh, disease. And so it was the week 24 data where the primary outcome was assessed was already reported a prior uh, Congress, but here we reported the next 24 weeks of therapy on study, the open label, you know, post crossover phase. So patients who were on momolotinib for the first 24 weeks or on danazol at that point were allowed to go on open label momolotinib. And kind of the key take homes from the presentation were the responses that we saw at week 24 with the blinded portion of the study were maintained through week 48. Whether we're talking transfusion independence, spleen volume response, symptom burden response. Uh, additionally, kind of a curious thing, a few of the patients who were on momolotinib who weren't responders at week 24 ultimately became responders by week 48 uh, in terms of symptom burden improvement. So that, that's kind of an intriguing thing because maybe we need to hang on to treatment a little bit longer before we can see the full effects. Um, but most importantly with the updated data is we didn't see any new safety signals. And that's really key at assessing any new therapy. I think that is a very important point with having more of the combinations in a frontline setting yeah. where people will be doubting whether to choose upfront combination over more of the novel JAK inhibitors. They are not myelosuppressive, such as mumelotinib, right? Yeah, clearly that's going to be the key thing is we're going to take a look at single agent JAK inhibitor side effect profile versus, you know, how bad are the side effects with combination therapy and do the added side effects from combination therapy uh, are, are they outweighed or outstrip the positive results that we'll see in terms of spleen volume response and symptom burn improvement? I think ultimately at the end of the day for the combination therapies that are coming along, things like, you know, Pelabresib and Ruxolitinib, Nivitoclax and Ruxolitinib and many others, can we see more than just spleen volume responses? Can we see more than just symptom burn improvement? We got, we got to do better by our patients. And I think that's what these really highly anticipated trials are going to hopefully show us. 
I think that was a fantastic point. Your definition of surrogative markers of these studies are really going to be the next work for us in the field because we will have more and more drugs and we will have to answer the question, how do we sequence them? Yeah. And how do we choose for what patient, what's going to be the benefit in? And then to that point, I think interesting data are surprising to me were the JAK2 allyl burden with, for example, ruxolitinib. Yeah. That, yeah. Not, that was not something I honestly expected. What do you take about that? Yeah, I mean, that's always a tricky one, right? Because uh, you can measure JAK2 allele burden in patients and it goes up and down without changes in therapy uh, sometimes in some patients. And, and so it's always tough to say. Um, likewise, the, the bone marrow fibrosis uh, uh, abstract was truly interesting to me too, where there was no association between clinical out, measured clinical outcome and changes in bone marrow fibrosis. So with all these kind of biomarkers, you know, whether we're talking about allele burden, whether we're talking about you know, bone marrow fibrosis, you know, you wonder like, why do we check these things? Because if they're not fully correlating with clinical outcomes, what's the value? I, sometimes I cynically think that we just check these things because we can. They're easy to measure, they're a stat, you know, we know how to do it. Um, but I think we need to, like you said, do further work, dig deeper and get to whatever the true biomarkers are in order to, to get these early reads. Ultimately, we want to see people live longer and live better. Um, but if we can predict that using a biomarker of some variety early on, I think that would be, is key. I think that that's great. And you touched really well on the topic of the bone marrow fibrosis, where we have heard a very intriguing um, abstract from Stephen O and actually from MD Anderson as a light author of Student Best Abstract about that the bone marrow changes do not matter. But then at the same time, we have heard update of the palabrasive combination with ruxolitinib showing that, well, okay, we, we have up to 20% of the patient that actually yeah. achieve complete resolution of the fibrosis. I think that is something interesting for us to be looking yeah. for. And waiting for. Although we have a little bit contradictory results with that from interferons. Yeah. Once we stop, the disease could still come back. Truly interferons are a biologic agent, right? So we have, uh, uh, in, you know, intron is no longer on the market, but we still have pegylated interferon and we have, you know, ropeg interferon and all those studies showing molecular emissions. I mean, intuition will tell you that that's not a bad thing. That is probably truly meaningful. You know, the, the part that kind of really complements that is the, the French data on treatment interruption with, in it, with interference, where people can go, go and stay in remission, climatologic remission, without even treatment uh, in those, those cases. And so I, I think it is biologically active and disease-modifying. And, and, you know, every time we hear these abstracts and the new data comes out, it just kind of reconfirms that. You know, the trick is it doesn't happen for everybody, right? There are still plenty of patients who have persistent disease or allele burdens don't go down or, or you know, these, these kind of amazing remissions. And who are those people that really do and how can we select for them and really apply this incredibly valuable therapy? I think that's a fantastic point. Uh, we actually also have from our institution update on 15 years of pegylated interferon in ATPV and we have seen some patients being technically cured the jactual burden went away, although when we use more sensitive assay, it was still detectable at zero point something percent. But we have patients who stop and never come back. But on the other hand, we have patients who has not achieved such a control and just rebounds right away. So what are those predictive tools that we can pick and choose and tell, hey, we're gonna do a couple years of interferon, you're gonna be cured, and that's it for you. Or those patients where we, hey, this is not the case, this is gonna come back right away, and then we'll need to come up with something better. Like the combination Ruxopec study, or uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the big knock with interference has always been toxicity, right? You know, patients can't handle, you know, can't tolerate interference. And 
that's true to a certain degree, you know, with the older versions of interferon and the, the intense dosing that used to be done. But the way we can handle nimbly uh, interferons now, especially with the newer things like Ropeg interferon that has a potentially better side effect profile, you know, I'm glad that we were revisiting this. And then, you know, case in point, every ash we come here, we hear more interferon studies that kind of reconfirm that idea. And Ruxopeg is a great example. You'd say, okay, we take Rux, we combine it with interferon, which is pretty toxic. This is gonna be, you know, people aren't gonna do well on it, but they actually did. And to me, you know, the responses are of course intriguing and, and, and I really like to see those, but the tolerability of the combination really stood out to me as well. I think that was impressive. Uh, regulated interferon, 135 micro week. It's a dose I would never use as a single agent because no. it would be quite toxic. It's pretty toxic. And with the ruxolitinib, yeah. there was pretty much almost non-discontinuation, like 2%. I was pretty surprised to see that. I, if you would have had me guess before the study was done, I would say, most people would have been on like say 45 micrograms yep. of that was my bet as well or maybe one of get a, a couple of patients would get up to 90 but i was pretty impressed with how big the doses could get because yep, you know i think it they think that's going to only deepen your biologic response i think if you can get more in folks safely yeah what about some of the novel agents that you're interested in yeah, you know, certainly the, the way I kind of like organize them in my mind is we had the last wave, which are all the new JAK inhibitors, you know, the, the, the pacritinibs, the fedratinibs, and the momolotinibs. And the next big wave are going to be these combination therapies. Um, so like I mentioned, palabresib, nivitoclax, parcyclisib, and all the other combination therapies. That, and the next wave after that is going to be stuff that's truly innovative. Uh, we heard the plenary abstract this year uh, on monoclonal antibodies directed against calverticulin mutated disease. That was fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating, right? So if, if you have a monoclonal that can affect change, it's really well tolerated, has a great side effect profile, then, you know, as, as oncologists, we like to put things together. So we're going to do it in combination. And then, you know, building off that, if it truly does target that, you know, could we do bispecific antibodies and use the immune system to kill these things? Can we come up with, you know, bites. some sort of engineered T cells or what bites? Yep. Uh, uh, and, and so really, I think that's, that's the next, that's the future, right? So that's going to be the next wave after the next wave. And, and that was really exciting for me to see. I think that was exciting because here we are actually going after the clone. We are not only, you know, doing some picosplin and symptoms as you elaborated at the beginning, yeah. we have to do better, yeah. go after the disease. So they showed that actually it does deplete the malignant clone. Yeah. So probably next day would be to go after jack to mutated cells. Yeah, simple <laughs> next step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and likewise, um, so we're, we're opening up a study at our center uh, looking at a vaccine trial. Uh, and so the, the, the protein for the vaccine does include JAK2, calorie and MPL, all three mutations, and then given a ipilimumab boost to kind of enhance the immune, immune response. And so, yeah, I mean, if we can harness, you know, uh, immunotherapies, uh, you know, even antibody therapies to really kind of go after those clones and eliminate them, to me, the biggest gains are gonna be in people who actually have lower risk disease High-risk disease is so molecularly complex, it advances so quickly. I worry that some of these th therapies may not be as effective, probably augmentative, but not, not, not transformative. But you know, think about someone with you know, kind of a high-risk ET that could turn into myelofibrosis in a few years. But if you turn back the clock 15 years, that could be a real huge win for that individual. So to me, that's really exciting because we don't have a lot of therapies for lower-risk myelofibrosis and ET and PV because, um, you know, Quite frankly, people do so well for so long, but if we could really turn back the clock for those folks, it could be a huge win. Yeah, yeah that's really very exciting to me. What about the TP53? I think that's always spanning lots of yeah. debates as emerging TP53 clone, if we actually use a key negative regulators like yeah. uh, MDM2 inhibitors, which I think there are a couple data, even on the combination with the PPM1D, yeah. which was very interesting as a, as a first 
kind of like yeah. put in uh, to see some efficacy and some safety. Yeah. That was something I was really interested in, but we'll probably have to follow more on the possible emerging TP53 clones. In that yeah. setting, I'm a little bit more anxious about how it's gonna play in disease such a, such a benign as, as some of these diseases are. Yeah. So, and I can, you can think of some patients that you've had who've had P53 clones and you're like, I don't know what to do. And you kind of sit on it and nothing happens, right? It, it, it is almost like a ticking time bomb. Um, but because you know if they, they progress, it's just so hard to treat. Uh, refractory to chemotherapy is more likely to relapse. You know, transplant outcomes are worse. They're not zero, they're not horrible. They're not, and it's not feudalistic, but it's not great. And so, you know, I think um, likewise, you know, therapeutic approaches to attack P53 mutated diseases desperately needed. Not just in MPNs, but I would say all malignancy. I mean, this P53's mutations being bad is a universal truth in oncology medicine. And so I think going after that could not only benefit patients with myelofibrosis and MPNs, but all onco oncologic patients in general. Yeah, yeah, there's been a bit, lots of data about the uh, CD47's yep. macrophages. Uh, has not translated to myeloprofinoplasm yet, but maybe we will see that sometimes in our lives to go after those yeah. clones and, and see how they're going to play out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but I haven't seen a lot of data about accelerated emblastic phases. Those are really the bottlenecks that we are facing that we don't really have anything for our patients here. No, nothing. Uh, I mean, we're still doing things like, you know, ruxolitinib and, and hypomethylene agent in combination in our clinics, maybe azavan, and that's about it. I mean, there's not really anything moving forward. Starting to use targeted therapies, right? So the MPNRC uh, 119 study looking at you know, IDH2 inhibition, but, you know, that's not really new in the AML world, if you will. Um, so I think, you know, better ways to attack accelerating blast phase disease is, a, is certainly a critical unmet need. Completely agree. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending a little time with me chatting about the updates in MPN world here at the 2020 ASH meeting. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again over the course of the year and, and reconvening in one year to talk about what else is new. Oh, thanks very much. It's been a really exciting year. Uh, we thank the VGM Oncology for inviting us and for having us part of this uh, lovely discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks much. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.